Now, if you would please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Book of Hebrews chapter 4. I did not, uh, I didn't decide just to write Mark's sermon. I thought that would be rude. I know he wants to say what he wants to say. But Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read the whole chapter and we will work through it. Hear now the word of our living God, his inspired and infallible word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, and as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, again we ask for your help this morning. We ask that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would hear the voice of our good shepherd, and that we would offer ourselves to him, that we would come to him, and that, Lord, you would work in our hearts the way that you need to work, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring encouragement, and, Lord, that you would work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Most of us uh, can relate to the idea of resting after a long trip. Uh, You know, most of us have gone on long trips for vacations. Maybe it's to see a a natural wonder of our country like the Grand Canyon. Maybe to see something like Mount Rushmore or something like that. Or maybe you've just taken a long trip to the beach. Or maybe you took your family to Disney World. When you get to the hotel, the beach house, wherever it is you go, especially if you're the driver, the first thing that you might want to do is just drop your luggage down and take a nap. And just rest a little bit because you're tired from the long trip. 
At least that's the way that I am. You just want to sit for a few minutes. The idea of rest is something that's kind of foreign in our culture today. Uh, The idea of rest is something that we don't exactly uh, participate in, except on vacations. But rest is a main point of the scripture. It's a main point of the book of Hebrews, and it is in fact the main point of our passage this morning. And it is one of the things that Christ has come to give us. This morning, we'll see that Christ has come to give us a greater rest. We see this in the promise of a greater rest. We, see, we will see that the, Lord, that the Word reveals our hearts, and we will see our great high priest. First, we see the promise of greater rest. Look with me at verses 1 through 10. The author of Hebrews has just spoken in chapter 3 about how Christ is greater than Moses about how the rebellious people in the wilderness did not continue in faith and they did not enter God's rest. He is there speaking about the promised land, the land of Canaan, and the boundaries that he has set for it. He says that those that were faithful, that continued in the faith, they entered into it, but not those that did not believe. He starts in chapter 4 saying that the promise of rest still remains. And then he gives us a warning in verse 1. He tells us that that promise of rest that God gave to the Israelites that was reminded of the people, or to the people in David's day in Psalm 95, that promise still stands. And since it does, we, we ought to fear lest any of us should fail to reach that rest. So that should spark a question in our minds. How can I fail to reach God's rest. Well, he's, he's told us in chapter 3, verse 19, if you look right above our text, it says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And he says it again in verse 2. He says that the good news came to them, same as it has come to us, but they were not united in faith to those that believed. In other words, the, the promise of God to give them rest came, but they did not listen. They did not believe, so they were unable to enter it. You remember the story. The spies go to the promised land and they spy it out. They see that it is good land and they come back and only Joshua and only Caleb give a good report. The rest of the spies say how awful it's going to be to fight the people to take the land that they can't do it. So the people believe the bad report and God punishes them to wander For 40 years in the wilderness until the entire generation dies. And their children and Caleb and Joshua will inherit the land. He says that we face the same danger of unbelief. We are able to miss the rest of God by not believing the promises of God. The Hebrews that he's writing to throughout the whole book, they are tempted to go back to the old Jewish religion the old Jewish system of sacrifices and all of those things that Jesus came to fulfill. He's telling them that if they do that, if they turn back, and if they go back to that system, he says that they have forfeited their share in the rest of God. Now he goes on to say that there's a rest that remains for the people of God. He says in verses 3 and 4 that God rested from his works in Genesis 2 verse 2, but in Psalm 95, 11, that he quotes, 
that the psalmist writes to the people of his day that they shall not enter God's rest. He makes his point in verse 6. He says that there remains a rest for the people of God. We are able to believe the good news, the gospel of Christ, and we are able to enter into the rest of God. And those that refuse to believe it fail to enter that rest. That's his whole point. He warns the people through David hundreds of years after the Exodus. He warns them and says, Today, if they hear God's voice, they ought not harden their hearts like the rebels did in the days of the Exodus. The, rest, uh, the point of all this is this, that the rest that God is inviting us into is his Sabbath rest that he began on the seventh day of creation. This is the rest that we enter into whenever we die and we pass on into heaven. And it is the fellowship that we have with God now on earth through Christ that guarantees that rest. The author makes his point even further in verses 8 through 12. He says in verse 8 that if Joshua, the one who conquered the promised land, had given them rest, then God wouldn't have spoken of another rest later on. He is saying that the rest that God promised is not the promised land. It was not when Joshua took it. It was not when he promised the promised land. It was more than that. In fact, it was then and there. If it was there, then there would have been no need to continue to promise rest. There's actually a play on words here in Greek. You don't really get it in English. But in Greek, it actually says this. If Jesus had given them rest. You see, our Lord's name in Hebrew is Joshua. That's, and Jesus is the Greek translation of his name. We call him Jesus because the New Testament was written in Greek. So we, are, we call Jesus Jesus. Uh, but uh, his point is this. The Old Testament Joshua is a type, a figure, a shadow of the Joshua of the New Testament. Joshua didn't lead them into lasting rest because not only did the people not take full possession of the promised land, but they lost it. They were thrown into exile because of their disobedience to God. And then when they came back, they didn't have full possession of it. Today, the Jews don't have full possession of it. They have lost the promised land. See, Jesus comes to give true rest. He tells us that the Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. And if we enter that rest, we rest from our works as God has. It is in Christ, through faith in Him, that we enter the rest of God. And we walk in it until we attain full possession of it. Not in heaven, but when Christ returns and He makes this world new. Have you ever come back from a vacation and you needed a vacation. If you ever come back and you had more work than you did when you left, you know, you're relaxing on the beach and then you come home and you've got a project at, at the house, you've got to catch up on work that you missed, and at some point you might even have had the thought, why did I go on vacation? It's, I'm not really rested anymore. Because you have more work to do. You feel like you might not have had any, as much work if you hadn't gone on vacation. The reason why we feel that way is because we're not resting completely. Every time you go on vacation, you have to come back and you have to go to work. We're not fully resting. 
In the same way, the people of Israel did not inherit rest with the promised land. It points to a greater promise, a greater rest that we have in Christ and ultimately in the new creation when he returns. So are you resting in Christ this morning? Yeah, I've been asked before in my ministry, uh, not just here, but at First ARP in Gastonia when I was an intern there by youth, uh, by children, even adults. Why do we go to church on Sunday? Why is Sunday the day that uh, we come here? Aside from it being the day that our Lord rose from the dead, and aside from a commandment from God, uh, we come to church every Sunday because it is practice for our life of rest together with God forever. We're practicing today what we're going to do forever. You see, Sunday is not a day for us. It's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. God has set it aside for himself, not for our entertainment, not for our hobbies, not for, not, not for things that we can do any other day. You see, it's the one day we're supposed to spend the whole day in the rest and the worship of God. The Bible is very clear on how you rest in God. We worship him. We spend the day in his house with his people. We hear his word taught. See, our lives are so overly programmed with school, with work, with sports, with events, with hobbies, with meeting, and this and that, and on and on. You know what I'm talking about. I could go on all day and tell you how, how much you are overprogrammed, and so am I. We have forgotten how to rest. It's not just taking a nap. It's not just vegging out on the couch. It's being with God, being with his people, practicing for our life with him on the new creation. Beloved, this is what we're made for. This is what we're saved for, being together with God's people. Sometimes we can be so focused in this life and everything that we've got going on that we actually miss the rest of Christ. Will we be so focused on it that we miss the rest of Christ in the next life? John Calvin said, The highest human good is therefore simply union with God. Let us not miss our highest good, union with Christ, rest with him for things that will leave us tired and worn down. So we see the promise of a greater rest. And secondly, we see the word of God reveals our hearts. Look with me at verse 11. He goes on to warn the people again, and he says that they are to strive, that we are to strive to enter God's rest and not fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, the author of Hebrews isn't saying you can lose your salvation in Christ. He's not saying that you have to work to get to God or to get into heaven. Rather, he's saying that real faith, continually presented in the scripture and continually presented in the book of Hebrews, is faith that continues on until you die. You see, faith is not something that we say we have today and then tomorrow or years from now we say that we, ah, I never had that. We don't lose it. We either have it and continue in it, or we don't. Now our faith waxes and it wanes, it grows all throughout our life. But we always, if we have faith in Christ, it is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit that grows throughout the years of our lives in our daily walk with Christ. Again, faith is something that perseveres throughout our lives. The author of Hebrews is saying that we must continue in obedience to the Lord and that we are not able to walk in disobedience to him 
and still claim the promises of rest. Another commentator, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, puts it this way. He says that God is not to be trifled with. His word cannot be ignored with impunity, but must be received in faith and obeyed in daily life. His and the author of Hebrews' point is that faith is a continuous walk of obedience until we reach the goal. He's not saying that you have to have perfect obedience. You can't, and I can't. He is saying we have to have genuine obedience, that we genuinely must strive to obey the Lord. He moves on in verse 12 to talk about why we have to have this genuine obedience and continuance in faith. It's because the Word of God is living and active. It's not like the words of men that can be ignored without consequence. There's many things that people say to us that we can totally ignore and it won't hurt us at all. But the Word of God is alive and it works in the hearts of people every time it is spoken. Isaiah 55.11 says that God's Word does not return void. Every time it goes out, it either softens a heart or it hardens a heart. The Holy Spirit is always working through the Word of God and in the people that hear it. The purposes of God's Word, they will always be accomplished. Every time. It cannot fail. The Word of God is not only living and active, but it is two-edged, meaning it's a sword that cuts both ways. It is able to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discern the thoughts of intentions of the heart. Now, the author isn't saying that our souls have different parts or he's not even making a commentary on our anatomy. His point is that like the double-edged dagger of Ehud in Judges, it is able to make the most precise cuts to the very core of who we are. That is what God's Word does. It shows our sin plainly. It makes our secrets known. Those that are lurking in the deepest parts of our heart. It shows whether our obedience to God is genuine or whether we are simply here to get people off of our back. See, our secret, and we might think that the secret intentions of our heart are not known or that they're hidden from everyone around us. They might be. But the Word of God makes them plain as it cuts us like a razor sharp sword. Not only are these things revealed by the Word of God, but there is nothing that is hidden by God, or from God. Look at verse 13. It says that there is no creature hidden from his sight. It's not just that his word is piercing like a sword. His sight is piercing like a sword. He sees all things. He looks into the deepest parts of who we are, and he knows us. And he has known it from all time. It says that we are naked and exposed to him whom we must give an account. The idea is very clear. We are to genuinely obey the Lord by faith, not because we're trying to earn our way to him, but because, or because that we are worried about what our friends and our family think. Because every action, every thought, every part of you and me is naked and exposed to God. We live before God's face. So we must walk before God's face. We can't trick the one who sees us laid bare. So we must continue in faith and obedience to him, knowing that he sees all things and that he has brought us to himself. Now, there are a few universal experiences in life, and I believe one of them 
is getting in trouble as a child. We have all gotten in trouble. Mark said I was from the south side of Gastonia, and uh, you get in trouble a lot in the south side of Gastonia. Even if you're not looking for it, it finds you. And perhaps you've had the same experience I have. You've been doing something that your parents told you not to do, and you were trying to hide it, and you thought you were good. And then your parents showed up and said, I've been watching you the whole time. And you thought, oh no. And you thought up all your best excuses, everything that you could possibly say, but nothing helped you get out of it. You realized that you were cooked. You were done. Your head sunk, and you knew that you were found out, and so all you could do was take your punishment and ask for forgiveness. See, that's kind of what it's like trying to hide your sin from God, my sin from God, trying to hide anything from God. He sees us. God always sees what we're doing. There's nothing that we can hide from him or get by him. You know, he knows all the thoughts that we're having, even the ones you're having right now in reaction to what I'm saying. We can't hide from him. He knows our hearts. This morning, the word of God has worked in your heart. We have either been hardened to the truth of Christ or we have recognized the reality of his word and we have been brought closer to him. Are we trying to hide from God? Are we here this morning because we think we might actually be able to hide in plain sight? Beloved, he knows. He sees it. Can't fool him. I can't fool him. He knows the sins that we're trying to hide from him, to put them in the darkness where he can't find them. He knows when we only act like a Christian around our friends, our family, the preacher, whoever it is. He knows that. He knows when we think that we've escaped his eyes and that he'll never find out what we've done. So why try to hide it? If we live our lives like we cannot hide from God, like Christ sees everything that we think and do, then, beloved, we'll have nothing to hide because we will live before God's face. We will live in a relationship with God, not trying to pass off fake obedience, but living in genuine obedience. If you have never come to faith in Christ this morning, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That God who sees all things will see your repentance and he will save you from your sins. If you have, if you do know Christ, then let us live in genuine obedience to him. Not trying to please the people around us or make them think that we're righteous, but seeking to be cut by the word of God, to repent of our sins daily, and to live before the face of the one to whom we must give an account. So we see the promise of a greater rest. The word reveals our hearts. And lastly, we see the great high priest. Our final point is in verses 14 through 16. So after telling us all this, that there is nowhere to hide from God, that the word reveals all, He says that we have, in verse 14, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is the Son of God himself, and so we are to hold fast to our confession. Now, confession here is the faith that we have in Christ. It's our uh, Christian faith. The author of Hebrews is saying that we are able to enter that rest that God has promised by holding fast to our confession, not because of our effort, but because of our great high priest who has passed into the heavens. You remember the high priests of the Old Testament. They worked in the temple or the tabernacle. They would offer sacrifices. Uh, They would offer sacrifices uh, most days and especially on the Day of Atonement. But they were only humans. They were sinful men and women, or not women, but they were sinful men, just as we are sinful men and women. 
they would offer these sacrifices for themselves and for the people. Here we are reminded that our high priest, he ministers in heaven before the throne of God. Not as a man, not just as a man, but as the Son of God himself. You see, Jesus is fully man and he is fully God. And that is how he ministers to us. Not as a son of Aaron, but as a son, as the Son of God. He is a great high priest, not simply because he's the Son of God, but look on with me. It says, because he is able to sympathize with our weakness. Now the question should, again, be raised. If Jesus is the Son of God, and he is therefore perfect, how can Jesus sympathize with my weakness? I am a sinful man, tainted by Adam. How can he know what it's like to be tempted? Now the author understands that that's a question, and he answers it. He has been tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. Jesus, during his time on the earth, was not without temptation. Now, he did not have a sinful nature, as we do, and he was not tempted from his sinful desires, because he had none. But he was tempted. In fact, he had greater temptation than we will ever have. He was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, and he faced him down. He was tempted throughout his life to sin, and he never gave in. If you can imagine two people uh, each pushing against each other's hands, that's what it's like to fight against temptation. And Jesus, his entire life, he was pushing back, and sin was pushing back. Now, if you stop pushing, you find relief. You might fall over, you might get hurt, but you're not pushing anymore. You have relief from the struggle. Jesus never stopped pushing. He never stopped resisting. Till the day he died, he never found relief from temptation to sin from outside. He was constantly pushing back. See, we give in. We sin and we find relief from the struggle. We might have guilt from our sin. We might have shame, but we've stopped resisting. Jesus never did that. He never found uh, relief in sinning. He knows exactly what we're going through and to even a greater degree because he suffered greater temptation. The author of Hebrews says that because of all this, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses and we should go boldly to the throne of grace or confidently and receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We must remember that we come to the throne of God and when we come there, we are asking for help not from the judgment seat, but we are asking from our loving Father. It's not that when you go and ask for help from God as his child, he is going to cast judgment upon you. We, if we have trusted in Christ, then we are coming to the throne of God as a child to a father, a loving father that cares for us. One that we are able to bring every need, every concern, every temptation and we, are to give, and we are able to give it to him, and he promises to help us. Again, back to the high priests. You remember, on the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice the sacrifice and go into the, the Holy of Holies, and there would be the Ark of the Covenant. And they would sprinkle blood seven times on the lid of the Ark. That lid of the Ark is called the mercy seat. God was called in the Old Testament, he is said to be enthroned on the cherubim. If you remember how the Ark looked, On top of it, there are two cherubim. The point is, the mercy seat 
is God's throne. And through Christ's sacrifice as our great high priest, we go not to a throne of judgment, but to a mercy seat when we go to God. The mercy seat of our Father to ask for help. So we must run to that throne and ask for help when we are tempted. Now all of us, we speak to our parents in a very specific and hopefully a very respectful way. Even as we grow older, uh, the way we talk to our parents, it grows different. Uh, Usually it grows more loving. We have nicknames that our parents have given us. Uh, We probably have even nicknames uh, for our parents. And we have years of a relationship with them that causes us to be able to speak to them in a special way. Now my daddy, uh, he works in a machine shop. He's a safety manager and he has an office there. So when I go see him, eat lunch with him or something like that, I just walk into the shop and I walk over to his office and uh, I don't knock, which might be rude, but I don't knock. uh, And I open the door and I just kind of plop down in the seat and eat with my dad. And usually when I'm there, someone else will show up. Dad, they'll have to ask dad for something. So they'll come, they'll, hey, Tim, do you have a second? Which is very different from the way that me and my brother speak to him. Nobody talks to my dad the way that I do except for my brother. In the same way, you don't talk to God as a stranger. You don't talk to God as someone he doesn't know, someone he doesn't love and care for. You speak to him as a child, speaks to their father, respectfully and loving and familiarly, confidently. Not arrogantly, but confidently. This week, have you felt the struggle of temptation? Are you beaten down by the battle of sin? And do you feel like there is no one in the world that knows how you feel? I promise you there is someone. The Lord Jesus Christ has faced greater temptation than any of us will ever know. And he conquered it without sin. He overcame it not only to save us and to bring us into the rest of God, but so that you would have someone to help you continue in faith. We are not called to continue alone in the Christian life. But with the help of Christ through the Holy Spirit. We are able to come to the mercy seat of God and ask for help and receive it because of Jesus Christ. You have everyone here in God's church to help you. Everyone here knows what it is like to be a sinner. We know what it is like if we have trusted in Christ to be redeemed by him and to struggle against sin. Do not do it alone. Trust in your high priest that has redeemed you, who can and will give you help and will sympathize with you, who lives as the Uh, Chapter 7 of Hebrews says, who lives to make intercession for you. Again, if you don't know Christ, then you don't know the rest of Christ, and you do not know the help of Christ. Repent of your sins and cry out to him in faith. And he will forgive you, and he will redeem you. This morning we are presented with rest. Rest from our sins. A rest from trying to fake our way through life. Rest from trying to hide who we are from God. And rest from trying to live this life by ourselves. Christ has come to bring us into communion with God so that we can have his Sabbath rest. So that we can practice it here, today, all day with his people. Will you receive it? Will you live in it? Or will you work yourself to death until you are broken and alone and in hell itself? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.